with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. On today's show, China's central bank has cut its benchmark mortgage reference rate by 25 basis points, and OpenAI reviews a new artificial intelligence tool called Sora. And now let's begin with our top story. China's central bank has cut its benchmark mortgage reference rate by 25 basis points to 3.95 percent, and the cut to the five-year loan prime rate or LPR was the largest since the reference rate was introduced in the year 2019. Experts say this is renewed effort to stimulate the credit demand and revive the property market. The cut was widely expected following a recent reduction in the reserve requirement ratio for banks, but 25 points is still more than market expectations. So, for more on this and China's economy, join us on the line now are Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and also Yan Liang, professor of economics, Willamette University. So, Dr. Zhou, first I will start with you. Looking at this cut to the five-year LPR, so what does it mean for the economy this year, and how do you interpret this move now? Yeah, in my understanding, I think that it's a kind of a not a very short-term decision. It's trying to release some of the atmosphere that the government is trying to have a better prediction about the future. So it's giving the market a lot of、uh, you know、uh, release on the pressure of the supply of the the fund. So I think it's a kind of measures trying to give the people more confidence that we can do not only to trying to strengthen the economic recovery this year, but trying to have a better future in the coming five years or a little bit more longer time. Mm, so yeah, so China is aiming for a flexible and targeted monetary policy. We know that most loans are priced,、uh, you know, based on the one-year LPR, and the rate has remained steady since last year. So why is the one-year rate unchanged? Well, the five-year benchmark lending rate is cut by a record amount. Do you think? Right, so that goes back to what you just mentioned.、Um, this is still about the overall prudent monetary policy, not over easing,、uh, but at the same time, it's targeted. So again, as we understand that proper sectors,、um, and there has been a slew of policies to support the sector. So this one is clear. It's cut、uh, for the five-year benchmark、uh, lending rates, which is the reference rate for、uh, mortgages. So the cut is very specific. It's trying to provide a, a stronger support、uh, for the housing market to allow home buyers、um, to be able to,、uh, you know, afford the kinds of mortgages and to purchase houses.、Um, so I think this is a very targeted policy, and that is also,、um, you know, in tandem with. Other policies,、um, like as we know that there are many cities have already re,、uh, relaxed the restrictions on home buying.、Um, they have also have been cutting, you know, mortgage rates and down payment requirements.、Uh, 
Um, on the supply side, the government has also whitelisted a thousand property developers, and the state-owned enterprises, uh, state-owned uh, commercial banks have also earmarked, you know, eighty-some billion dollars for uh, lending to these whitelisted property developers. And we also know that the government has been pushing forward the three projects, right, social housing. Uh, uh, city village revitalization and public infrastructure. So all these are, you know, really a basket of policies that try to stabilize the housing market. Now, again, um, the point is not to go back to the property investment driven kind of growth, but really is trying to stabilize the market. Mm, so, Dr. Zhou, what do you think does this uh, five year LPR cut mean specifically for the property sector? And what does it mean when it comes to the economic confidence? Yeah, I agree with uh, yeah that you know when we're talking about that uh, the cost of the people who are going to buy the houses, they are mainly relate on the you know five years or even longer uh, about the interest rates. So when we are talking about the fluctuation, most of these loans are to do with some consumption, like for buying the car or some kind of uh, very important uh, things for the household. But it's different. So for the real asset, I think it's a really a very important time for China to have a sustainable, you know, uh, recovery of the real estate because it has many relations with so many sectors, including the construction and also the steel and ironing and also the services. It's a really a big problem to do with employment. So we want to have a better recovery in this atmosphere. And I believe this kind of adjustment is trying to give more confidence and stabilizing the real asset and trying to make it a stronger support for the mm. future uh, risk, uh, recovery, but not trying to be the pillar. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so China's monetary policy remains prudent and targeted, and the moves are gradual relative to other central banks. So do you think this is the appropriate way for the Chinese economy? Absolutely. So I think, uh, first of all, um, China's economic you know, reality is different than others. And so different countries have you know, there are different phases in that uh, business cycle. So for many countries like the United States, the uh, European countries, um, they were struggling with high inflation. So they have been tightening their monetary policies in a very aggressive way, trying to fight inflation. But in China, I think um, the, the business cycle is where the inflation has not been a problem. There has been some deflationary pressure uh, because of you know the real estate market readjustment, rather. Um, also, you know, a relatively steady recovery from the pandemic. So I think there are different economic issues that you know monetary policymakers have to cope with. So I think for China, the prudent monetary policy is the right way to go. Um, the government should not cut interest rate. Uh, too aggressively because that could increase the interest rate differentials uh, between China and other countries. And that could have pressure on, you know, the currency and so on and so forth. But at the same time, it makes sense to cut interest rates to provide some extra stimulus to the economy and also to help to rebuild the balance sheets um, of households, corporations and so on after, you know, the pandemic. So I think um, it's a very delicate balance that I think the PBOC is doing right now. That on the one hand, you know, keeping the uh, one-year uh, loan prime rate constant or unchanged, and on the other hand, really having the targeted cuts at the five-year uh, rate to help to provide extra support for the housing market um, to, in order to stabilize the the market and to um, help to stimulate the overall economy. So I think that is the right approach uh, mm. to go. 
And Dr. Zhou, we just talked about the monetary policy. And recently, many provinces held meetings to explore ways to boost their business environment and uh, the private sectors on the first working day after the Spring Festival holiday. So Guangdong, for example, they held a meeting to urge the efforts for technological innovation and digitalization of more than 9,000 major industrial enterprises. So what advantages does Guangdong have? on the uh, industrial and technological innovation, do you think? Yes, for Guangdong, it's uh, the first areas for China to open in the history. So it's benefited by the interaction between China's domestic market and the international communities. We know that Guangdong is also a very important region that China uh, are trying to integrate different resources. So in my understanding, there are mainly two advantages. The first one is the openness, because Guangdong is uh, the, the better uh, the frontiers of openness, and it has a lot of uh, cooperation with the foreign market. So they know what is happening there, and they can benefit by the two-way communications between these domestic and foreign markets. Well, the second is that integration of the Great Bay areas, it have uh, many cooperation with uh, Hong Kong and Macau. So the uh, communications about the human resources, the financial resources, and also a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises has making it uh, more strengthened uh, of the supply chains there. Uh, It's a very important base for many of the manufacturers in Guangdong. So yen, the province GDP hit 13 trillion yuan or 1.8 trillion US dollars last year. So what do you think are the main reasons for the economic development in Guangdong over the past year? Right. So I agree with Dr. Zhou. I think Guangdong has very unique advantages. It is the first region that, you know, uh, opened the earliest, right, to the rest of the world. It's the house of, you know, uh, uh, cities like Shantou, Shenzhen, Zhuhai. They were all the first batch of special economic zones. So they have really started to reform and open early on. And they have established really the very, uh, you know, expansive uh, supply chain, supply network. And really, um, they they were boasted as the world's uh, factory, right? They're the powerhouse of manufacturing. So right now, I think still that main engine for Guangdong's economy is its manufacturing industries. And then they also have really well-connected infrastructure, traffic and communication network, also very convenient custom clearance, um, also very pragmatic entrepreneurs. Um, as you know that uh, in China, there's a saying, you know, Dong南西北中, so uh, with all the directions of the countries, if you wanted to make a fortune, you go to Guangdong. Um, so I think, you know, this place is known for its dynamism, its entrepreneurship, its innovation. Um, and it's also, you know, one of the cities, Shenzhen, is the world's largest in, uh, electronic manufacturing hub. Mm. Um, and it's the home for many of the high-tech industry uh, companies like Tencent, Huawei, and ZTE. So these are really great advantages to Guangdong. Now, that said, there are definitely headwinds. And, you know, this this region has been known for export-oriented production. And because of the, you know, geopolitical uh, tensions around the world, also because of a lot of the, um, as we mentioned earlier, um, that uh, dis- disruptions in the supply chain due to the COVID and also regional wars, um, some of the export-oriented production has been interrupted. So I think really for Guangdong, and as they rightly, correctly understand um, that to grow further, they would need to really embark on the high quality development, meaning that they need to continue to innovate, 
to have productivity growth, um, to continue to uh, look outward and try to find new partners, uh, attract uh, you know foreign investments and so on and so forth. So I think you know overall um, this region remains to be very solid. It has the great industrial bases. It has the great you know outward looking and entrepreneurship. Um, so all of these would help it to succeed, and it will continue to accelerate the kind of high tech and high de- high quality development strategies. Mm-hmm. And Shanghai is also quite important for China's economy. So Dr. Zhou, for Shanghai, the State Council has approved the general plan for developing the Eastern Hub International Business Cooperation Zone. So why is it now, and what does it mean for not only the city of Shanghai but also China's opening up? Yeah, we know that Shanghai is uh, really uh, very active in trying to develop some better area, like for the free trade zone, as Ian have mentioned, it's a first raised in Shanghai. So it's, uh, I mean, in the past uh, several years, we see that Shanghai has uh, found some of the rules-based innovation. But now I, I would believe that Shanghai is trying to develop something different. It's trying to strengthen its infrastructure cooperation with the uh, lower Yangtze River region, like Jiangsu and Zhejiang, and trying to separate its uh, transportation or logistics from the domestic and the international. So I, I think that uh, transportation center is also one of the four centers that Shanghai is trying to become. So uh, uh, it's a really uh, good, important and uh, way of uh, trying to develop a better uh, cooperation like for the supply chain, because we know the transportation is not only for the logistics of the cargoes, but also for the humans, for the peoples. They can they can come and go very easier. Uh, I mean, with the, the new construction of the Pudong uh, airport and also this center, trying to integrate the different kinds of uh, communications to make a better support for the higher uh, quality development in Shanghai and support the region's development. Mm-hmm. So, Yan, so how do you view Shanghai's pillar industries like the bioeconomy, financial services and high-end manufacturing? Right. So these are the very cutting edge and the very leading industries in Shanghai. And these would definitely continue to drive that, you know, quality growth, um, you know, productivity driven and technological uh, innovations driven kinds of growth. So I think, you know, Shanghai does possess a lot of advantages, right, with all the infrastructure, with all the connectivities and also with a lot of supportive policies, um, you know, like the pilot free trade zone. Um, that we were talking about. And it has also really long established connections with, you know, international investors, uh, very, uh, you know, large markets and so on and so forth. So I think this is very important for Shanghai to continue to leverage on, you know, its international metropolis kinds of status and utilize the talents and attract talents and develop, continue to develop these uh, pillar industries. And Dr. Zhou, so Shandong is now focused on the high-level opening up, calling for more support to attract foreign investment. So what economic structure or advantages does Shandong have? Yeah, Shandong is very famous for its agriculture. It's, uh, you know, so many agricultural products. I think that agriculture is one of its priorities because it has uh, many cooperation with Japan and South Korea with the standard, uh, some of the criteria, and even the ways of management of all the process of the agriculture. Well, the second uh, important part of Shandong is uh, about the manufacturing and also the raw materials related uh, sectors. So Shandong has very good 
knowledge bases for development are a better output on the cooperation with uh, other countries. And I, I believe that they have a very, very nice structure for the recovery and also the development in the industries and also the agriculture. Mm. And Yan, so Anhui and Liaoning provinces are now trying to improve the business environment and provide opportunities for private enterprises. So how do you explain that? And what can the local governments do to improve the business environment for private enterprises? Right. So I think, you know, as our discussions show that all these different provinces, cities, um, they're all trying their best to in a way, you know, uh, map out the growth paths of their res- respective regions. And they're all trying to find ways to boost d- the local economies. So to your question, yes, private enterprises are very important. There has been the 60, 70, 80, 90 rule, right? So the private enterprises contribute about 60% to China's GDP, 70% of its innovative capacity, 80% of urban employment, and 90% of the newly created jobs. So private jobs, uh, private enterprises are super important um, for the country's economy. So I think then all these localities are trying their best to cultivate their local um, private enterprises. Now, this is not about, you know, having the old way where, you know, these localities would try to compete and try to duplicate some of the production and try to protect their local economy. But rather, I think now what China is trying to do is really have this uh, you know, dual circulation. Domestically, they want to build a unified market. In other words, I think all these localities are trying to boost their local economy, but also trying to build the synergies with the bigger market. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villamette University, and also Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. And after a short break, we'll look at OpenAI's new artificial intelligence tool, Sora. Stay with us. D-Dive, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. OpenAI, the maker of ChatGPT, has revealed a new artificial intelligence tool. It is known as Sora. It can generate one-minute-long videos based on a simple text prompt. CEO Sam Altman said they are teaching AI to understand and stimulate the physical world in motion. So what does the new leap in artificial intelligence mean for different industries? And what are the potential risks? How should people be prepared for it? For more on this, I earlier talked with Professor Pascal Fong, Director of the Center for AI Research, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. So, Professor Fong, thank you for joining us. And OpenAI, the maker of ChatGPT, is developing a new tool called Sora, and it can generate one-minute-long video based on a simple text prompt. So could you tell us uh, what is this new technology and how does it work? Um, so it is a uh, text-based, uh, so it takes the input, as, like you say, it takes the input, uh, text input prompt, and then it generates a one-minute video. So it is. You can imagine it is like a step beyond, um, like uh, a Dali, stable diffusion, or Midjourney, where you take a text prompt and you generate uh, an image. So this is a one-minute video. 
to it's it's beyond that. And um, experts say that Sora appears to be significantly more advanced than any other video generation tool. So, what's new of it, and what does it mean for us? It is more,、um, perhaps more,、uh, the quality of the video is more clear,、uh, and then it's more dynamic and has some、uh, abilities such as you know you can see the continuity.、Uh, you know, if if somebody moves in front of something and Or behind something and then comes back out, so it is a better continuity and so on. So there is a improvement, significant improvement, perhaps in terms of video quality. But so far, nobody has done a clear benchmark or measure of its semantic quality. You know whether the video、uh, is portraying something、uh, correct.、Um, so just like、um, actually, if you look at the OpenAI's website about Sora, they already. List all the、um, uh, errors that Sora is making. So, for example, errors in terms of perspectives, errors in terms of physics. You know,、uh, glass shattering against a hard surface.、Um, you know, the video of that is not sh-、uh, showing the glass shattering correctly. So, there's still a lot of problem、uh, in terms of physics and some kind of、uh, common sense physics, I、mm-hmm. would say. But nobody has done any evaluation of that. So, I wouldn't call it、um, significantly. Better in terms of the content in、mm. in, in that sense,、mm, so, but the quality definitely means it's beautiful and everything. And so, what does this mean for different industries? For example, how would it impact or reshape the filmmaking industry and even news businesses? For now, not much, because as I said, we don't solve this physics problem. It looks definitely、uh, a perspective. It just it looks bad, right? So. And also, one minute is not very useful for anything for now. However,、uh, you know, it is on the path. It's on the, in the direction of that we will one day soon perhaps have a video generation tool that can generate、uh, realistic uh, with uh, very little error. So the the phenomenon of generation that's not、uh, acceptable or not uh, uh, consistent with the physical、uh, with the physical world is called hallucination. So just like ChatGPT sometimes will generate content that's non-factual, even though it seems very fluent.、Mm. Um, this kind of tool can generate images that are beautiful, but it's counter, you know, it's non-factual, meaning it it doesn't follow the laws of physics. So before we can, you know, solve this problem, you know, we will have a lot of videos generated. For now, just one minute, but in the future, we'll have longer term, longer length videos. Um, they won't be accurate, and、uh, so. But you know,、uh, just imagine at one point we do solve the hallucination problem, so these videos will be very realistic, and you can't tell it、uh, from you know a reality. Then we will have the same issue as we, what we have with the large language models tools that you know we won't be able to tell the the, the reality from AI generated. So, what do you think about the regulation about the ChatGPT or the generative AI? When we talk about the regulations, so what should be the regulatory focus? Do you think? I think regulatory focus needs to、uh, focus on preventing misuse. It's the usage of such technology,、um, and then it should it it is already. I mean, there you know, I'm part of a lot of regulatory discussions. We're talking about preventing basically all these kind of harm、uh, caused by generative AI because generative AI can generate very very realistic content,、um, but they are not real, 
uh, and sometimes they are not factual. So the misuse and also the um, safeguard against uh, the errors that the models make. Although for Sora, when you see the video and if it makes errors, you can tell. It's easier to tell when it makes some errors than, you know, text, for example, I would say. For now, if you see that the glass is not shattering properly on the surface, you know it's fake. And if you see that perspective is wrong, you know it's fake. But um, it is uh, the problem is when it no longer has those errors, right? So it looks completely real. Then the same same regulatory uh, precaution mm. should apply. And with the rapid development of artificial intelligence, do you think there are some industries that are better off with automation, while others less so? And what about the trickle-down effect on the workers' yeah. employment? Yeah. When you say better off, it's really hard to say what better off means, right? Is it better off for the um, companies, more profitable, or is it better off for the workers? So maybe a company uh, will use more AI and, uh, you know, they can employ less uh, fewer workers and they can be more prof profitable and so on. But for the workers themselves, for the workers who, whose skills are being replaced, then um, they need to find new venues. So, for example, uh, the copywriters or the, uh, you know, a um, lot of the content generators, I would say, um, they might find it challenging to compete against these kind of tools uh, right now in the immediate future. So what they need to do is that they need to use the skills, for example, to help mitigate the, um, you know, evaluate these tools and help improve the tools or help mitigate the um, uh, safety issue from these tools because we still need their expertise, right? We still need the graphic artists, we still need the video artists, and we still need the copywriters to tell us how well these generative models are doing. And don't forget, uh, you know, re reinforcement learning with human feedback, which is a huge process um, before releasing these models. And, and you, you do need uh, humans uh, in, in this area. But uh, having said that, going forward, workers need to be uh, versed. They need to know how to use these tools. And uh, in, in every industry, they need to know how to use these tools. The ones who know how to use these tools will replace the workers who don't know how to use these tools. So it's not replaced by AI, but replaced by people who do know how to use these tools mm -hmm. and do know the uh, limitations of these tools. When I say knowing how to use it also means that they need to understand how to, you know, its limitations and how to um, use it effectively. And forget about the hype. I think it is not important right now for people to worry about whether, you know, AGI is going to kill us in, in the next year or something, but it is important to really spend time on using these tools uh, themselves and reading the uh, uh, the publications and uh, you know blogs if, if they cannot read the technical papers but read the blogs associated with it uh, from credible sources so from the makers themselves and for example the Google on Gemini and OpenAI on Sora and so on read it and uh, try to understand you know discuss with other people who are using it and so on. And that was Professor Pascal Feng, director of the Center for AI Research, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.